Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015. It's the Hockey Pediocast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Pediocast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Alex Pruitt. Alex, what's going on? It's story time with Alex. Well, not well, Dimitri. I have a broken kneecap, broken jaw, broken <laughs> sternum, re-aggravated thumb, and a sprained hand. Yeah, Ben, I think your larynx... Oh, and a broken humerus. Your, your larynx is okay, so you should be able to podcast on today. That's actually the worst part of how I'm doing right now, I think, is the voice. It's I think it's totally shot. Yeah. Oh, man. Poor Kevin Miller. That, 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 in, that injury list, like... I think oh. it's people that have been following the game kind of know it's like it's like a it's a tradition where at the end of the season these lists come out and you're like how are half of these guys even playing and it's remarkable that they were as effective as they were but I think you could tell especially with that Bruins team as that series was going on that they were just like being held together by like scotch tape and band-aids and stuff it still shocks me though just the extent of it the the medical verbiage that seems to come out because we get so little of it right during the year all we get is uh you know, the, the most we'll get is like a re-aggravated lower body injury. Um, but the specificity, specificity that seems to come out on, on breakdown day, uh, it's, it's aptly named breakdown day. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast a bunch and it's not necessarily groundbreaking information, but I, and it's never, we're never going to take games off of the slate because then you're taking money out of people's pockets and that's never going to happen. But Man, it's, it's, I mean, the fact that that last game was on June 12th and, and, you know, season starts, what, first week of October and the mileage and just how difficult these games are, especially in the postseason, just how, I don't know, it, at some point it stops feeling and I'm not to take anything away from the Blues and I think certainly durability and having enough depth to make up for those injuries is a skill and teams should be lauded for it. But at some point it kind of stops being like fully about just like skill and who's the best team and just more like luck and sort of just who can withstand the the war of attrition the best or the least worst or whatever yeah yeah and I, and i'm sure from the inside there's so much reward and gratification that comes with playing through that stuff that comes with especially winning when you're banged up when the the sacrifice is tangible when you can feel it in your body but from the outside i'm I'm just like what the hell are you doing like what are you playing through here like the hockey culture of just suck it up and um kind of grit through some of these things especially when it involves kind of nebulous stuff like the head um i'm i'm kind of baffled sometimes i mean it's it's amazing at once and also kind of disturbing no yeah no well that's the thing there's certain injuries i guess you could say like realistically you can only make it so much worse or or it's a type of thing where uh it might just be a pain tolerance issue and then after you know you have a summer off you'll be good to go but then there's certain stuff where it's like if you're like putting your long-term future health when you're in your 40s in jeopardy because of this like i i get the the bravado and and sort of uh the culture around hockey and 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 sort of this warrior mentality but i mean you got to kind of weigh the risk versus reward and think about this stuff a bit more rationally. Everyone wants to win the cup, obviously, but man, when you're putting your, your, your literal like 
quality of life uh, after hockey and Jeopardy. That's that's something that, as we learn more, especially about the head injuries component of it, is becoming like really tough to rationale and reconcile just as a fan. Yeah. Whereas like I'm worried about you know having too many watermelon sour gummies in the press box or something like what problems we have. I mean I'm so washed up. I'm getting worried these days. Like if I'm if I'm starting to have a couple beers, I'm like oh man I got I better get better get the waters going tomorrow morning. It's gonna be really rough for me. Like, that's that's the other part. I started thinking about this when the Caps were celebrating last year and they just went all day drinking constantly. Like these guys are machines. These guys are drinking machines and maybe maybe this kind of speaks to what we don't know behind the scenes or maybe they're just, you know, athletes and, um, they can kind of take a lot of punishment and re- rehydrate really quickly. But, uh, man, just like sta- I was kind of standing there in the, the blues locker room as they were, you know, celebrating and throwing champagne everywhere and everyone's taking a turn chugging out of the cup, right from the equipment guys to owner Tom Stillman. And, um, they were about to fly home at like 2 AM land and land it in St. Louis and then immediately go to the arena for another party. I'm like, how do you, how do you have the stamina for this right now? And then you're going to do it for the next couple of days. Like, like you said, I have, I had two beers last night out to dinner and like, I'm, I was fine. It was great, <laughs> but yep. I don't want to do it anymore. No, I know it, it really takes its toll. I don't know. These guys are, are, are wired differently. They're animals, but they, I, there's probably some like, um, scientific like metabolism component to this as well oh for sure their their bodies handle it a bit better than you and i do um okay let's talk a bit about so we're going to do a bit of game seven stuff kind of put a bow on the cup final and the series you were obviously there you were bouncing around between st louis and boston and and i want to hear about uh sort of what people were talking about behind the scenes and what some of the buzz for the summer was but let's first get to that game seven because uh obviously we're recording this on a saturday morning slash early afternoon and we've had a few days here to marinate on it um as opposed to just like immediately turning out an instant reaction podcast and as time's gone on like it's it's just thinking about that game seven um it's amazing how I think if the Bruins do get one of those goals early on when they were just peppering the Blues and peppering Jordan Bennington with shots, um, this game's obviously like entirely different, right? Just the fact that Bennington stepped up, made some of those big saves in the first period and allowed them to kind of get their sea legs a little bit and score those two goals early. Like After that, it was just completely unlocked in the second and third period with one of the better sort of team defensive efforts that I can remember seeing in some time. Yeah, I think if they get one of those 12 in the first period against Jordan Bennington, as you said, or if Brad Marchand's mind doesn't go for a walk um, with 10 seconds left and decide to change and let Alex Petrangelo kind of walk into the slot uh, after a pretty nice play, admittedly, from Jane Schwartz, but you could kind of see Marchand was on tire legs right there as he whiffs for a hit and then doesn't even really turn around to see what's going on. He just heads right to the bench. And um, I thought that was kind of a killer there with 10 seconds left to obviously go up yep. 2-0. But um, yeah, I know you're right. Back to the kind of physicality where you're down part of it um that's been the blues mo since Bruby took over i think um they're maybe not going to win the shot battle every night but um they're going to protect the house pretty well and i was particularly impressed with their ability to kind of get sticks and lanes um, especially in the neutral zone there was nothing north south that i thought boston was really able to get of of substance um especially as the game plotted on and they were able to tighten up there on the st louis end so um yeah it was it was kind of a typical st louis victory i thought just wear them down wear them down um opportunistic goal here or there you know take advantage of a guy you know a nice tip by o'reilly or a guy going to the bench for a, a chain a suboptimal change like marchand and then you're up and you just kind of rely on the structure that got you there yeah i mean the blues uh the bruins had six high danger chances in in, in first period and then they had i think three combined the rest of the way there you go and uh that kind of is is the story of this game and you know full credit to jordan bennington because i did a sort of game seven preview before it with justin Bourne, and i was talking about how i really hope that um he didn't win the con Smythe, even if the blues won and he ultimately didn't it went to ryan o'reilly just because i felt like he wasn't deserving of it he it's, a, it's obviously a great story in terms of him coming in halfway through the year getting hot carrying this team this far a rookie goalie uh winning all 16 playoff games for the first time ever like i get all that but just watching some of these games like and, and i guess this is sort of um the risk versus reward with him or the or, or sort of um you could kind of look at it as a glass half full sort of mentality because i thought there were certain games where he certainly wasn't nearly as good as people would make you think that he was but then it seems like every time he did have a bad game like in game six for example he'd come back with game seven and just have um a world-class performance and we saw it again here and i think that's sort of what's drawing in people with this story about him and his performance this year is sort of that like um kind of cool confident demeanor that leads to some of these strong bounce back performances where he seems a bit unflappable like he has a bad game and then no matter what you don't think it's going to spiral into three or four bad games in a row he'll kind of bounce back and 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 give them a chance to win and that's exactly what happened here 
Where was he on your con smith, hypothetical con smith ballot? I mean, I, I honestly had him behind uh, Rask. I had I had mine was like Pareko one, O'Reilly two, Rask three, and then it probably would get into like I, may, I might even have Alex Petrangelo ahead of him to be honest. But like then he, I I'd start considering it like. I just game five, he was awesome, obviously, and he helped them steal that game in Boston. And in game seven, in the first period, he was a difference maker. But if you watch these games, like I, I ultimately think the Blues won this series not because they had the better goalie or because Jordan Bennington stood on his head, but because they just had the better, healthier team, like flat out. Yeah, a, a lot of first saves from Jordan, and then a lot of nice rebounds that St. Louis won fifty fifty races too. Well, and, and that's the thing. That's when when, when I when I, when I talk about like how he's in a in a great position. Like the Blues are clearly a strong defensive team, and we saw that in in the second and third period in terms of how they can limit the quality and sort of how they can clog up the neutral zone. But I think that's like an under talked about component of this. Where I, I do think as this postseason went along, his re- rebound control was pretty suspect and. Just it seems like every time he does cough up a rebound, like there's someone there from wearing a Blues jersey to quickly clean it up for him, and and that must be a pretty like sweet luxurious spot to be in in a goalie as a goalie where you know you really just need to focus on making that one first save. I will say that in Game Seven he was magnificent. He was as yeah. the game went on. I thought um, for sure, but yeah, to your point, yeah, he's you know looking <laughs> looking at what uh, he loses in Game Three, gives up five goals, gets pulled for the first time, comes back save two goals allowed in game four one goal out in game five and 38 saves and then another kind of stinker in game six and yeah so i mean calm cool collected was the story with him i was kind of I, he's kind of a little hothead though no like i mean you go back to the minors where he's starting to brawl by slashing a guy and um the little interaction he had with bishop in the second round i think was pretty premeditated i think he was like trying to agitate a little bit i think he has that that impulse in him where um he's he's self-aware enough to know that um he has the reputation as kind of the icy calm guy. So if he sneaks a little slash in there, or if he jabs a guy or, you know, throws an elbow or something after the whistle, he's, he might get away with it. Um, I think he's a little calcul, a little more calculated than people think in that regard. No, I think, I think the kind of calm, cool demeanor is like off the ice where he doesn't really seem to show a bunch of emotion or, or, or get too high or too low on the ice. It's certainly a, a different story. Definitely. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, it is really that simple. Like if, that game just entirely shifted just based on how that first period went. And, you know, just watching those second and third periods, um, clearly the Bruins were sort of running on fumes and didn't have that much left in the tank to begin with. But any any sort of um, inspiration or hopes they might have had entering that second period to come back from that two-goal deficit, like almost immediately the Blues just shut the door on that with what I thought was a, a neutral zone masterclass where, like, mm-hmm. how many times did the Bruins cleanly just exit and then carry into the offensive zone without like two blues defenders just all up in their space, either disrupting them or stealing the puck or, or making it difficult for them. Like it just felt like they were everywhere. And it was sort of like the beauty of this blues team uh, down the stretch under Craig Berube, where it did really feel like they were kind of like all pushing and pulling in the same direction as one cohesive unit. And that was really fun to watch. Having a guy like O'Reilly, who is as good as any defenseman at retrieving pucks, is yeah. definitely helpful, especially mm-hmm. when you guys have pinching, guys pinching in the offensive zone. Um, I thought Boston <clears throat> might have tried to go airborne a little bit more, kind of the, the lob to space, and um, maybe rely on some of their small forwards to, to go get it and, and enter cleanly. But same time, St. Louis's guys are so good at getting back. Um, I mean, Pareko is an oak tree, but he skates pretty well. and um, Even Trando is pretty sound. And obviously a guy like Dunn, I think, maybe change the complexion of the series when he came back in the lineup, what he was able to do in terms of retrievals and moving the puck North South, unlike some of the other guys back there. So um, yeah, no tough time. I was like you, I was pretty impressed with um, the number of, you know, maybe little, little saucer passes or stuff off the boards that, that Boston try, you know, a little chip to space or um, kind of a little short area plays that they normally are pretty good at to spring their guys and come and clean in the offensive zone. And then every time it seemed to be that there was a stick there waving it and, it was knocked down and it was going the other way or it was knocked down and it was getting shuttled all the way back to, to Bennington or whoever the, the last D-man back was and um, up they go and dump in and wear him down and kind of rinse and repeat. Well, you mentioned having Ryan O'Reilly certainly helps. Um, having Alex Petrangelo and Colin Pareko, at least one of them out there for, I believe, like 51 oh, of yeah. the 60 minutes certainly helps. Um, like it felt like as, as the game was going on, uh, you know, they were getting um, – Edmondson and and Gunnarsson and Dunn out there, but it felt like they scrapped the idea of having three defense pairings and we're just like, okay, we're just going to have Preco and Petrangelo and then we're going to just mix and match with all of the other guys. And they played a heck of a game. They played a heck of a series in postseason. And, and 
I you know credit I guess to, to to Craig Berube for sort of it seems obvious it's like oh player best players but considering all the angst with Mike Babcock in round one and 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 some stuff we've seen and talked about this postseason like it's not necessarily that simple it is a bit ballsy especially this late in the year where the guys might not necessarily have as much left in the tank as they would have otherwise and for those two guys to be just absolute workhorses for them certainly you know kudos to to Berube and the Blues for for trusting them and riding them and kudos to those guys for playing as well as they did. 54 minutes, five seconds of 5v5 time on ice total yep. in game seven. Yep. And Pareko and Petrangelo combined for 48-32. Did you, uh, I tweeted this, Pareko. I promise uh, I am not a uh, Colton Pareko's agent. I've uh, <laughs> I've been talking him up quite a bit here recently. But, you know, in, in round one, him and Bo Meester struggled a little bit just with that Scheifler-Wheeler line. And I'm, I'll give him a pass for that because those guys are so yeah, good offensively. And, and, and we'll they, do. they gave up four, five goals against a 5-on-5 in that series after that. So in rounds two, three, four against uh, the Stars, Sharks, and Bruins, all all three pretty, you know, not, not the Stars weren't a, a great offensive team, but they had great offensive players that could really beat you. And Pareko was playing against those guys pretty much exclusively. And uh, five, 430 uh, total five on five minutes in those three series combined, the Blues gave up eight goals in that time, which is just um, absolutely insane. It just speaks to when he was on the ice, it was pretty much just game over for the other team, like regardless of whether they had their best guys or the best defensive pairings out there they just weren't going to score any goals because he was just shutting everything down and and obviously having Bennington to make the saves behind him as well certainly helps but yeah it was uh and that's why I had him as first on my on my cons my ballot I just thought that he was the most impactful player for this Blues team uh O'Reilly was in this series certainly but it's not like the NBA where it's an NBA finals award it's a it's a full postseason longevity award and I thought Pareko was their best player from start to finish I, I don't know if we'll ever get enough counting stats to be in Norris trophy conversation, um, especially as they went to Dunn on PP one away from him. And mm-hmm. I think kind of shifted the focus away from that big boomer of a slap shot from the top of top of the point. But I mean, he was the best defenseman in the playoffs for sure. Um, I, I feel like we should, yeah, definitely take some time to acknowledge the job that he did um, locking down those top lines. And, and also to that extent, I feel like free and Petrangelo up yep. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, just looking at the numbers, Petrangelo was like plus seven in 5v5 goal differential in the entire series. And I think he led the team with like a 55 Corsi four. Yep. Um, so springing him up, freeing him up a little bit. Um, I mean, Dunn's offensive zone starts when he came back in the lineup were, you know, 80% or something crazy like that. And, and the shot differential reflected that. So um, the trickle down effect that also that you had of having such a sturdy rock back there, like, like Colton Pareko and, and look, Jay Bomeister was not the dead weight that I think people might've expected him to be when he was, you know, getting talked about getting waived in the middle of the season either. No, he wasn't. But playing with Golden Breako, I, I imagine makes a, guy, uh, a lot Pretty of guys look good. better than than they might be. It make, makes up for a lot of your mistakes with that uh, long reach of his. No, you're right. Um, it all kind of ties together, and and this kind of you know ties to the Bruins' struggles, right? Like it's at the end of the day. Um, obviously, they made it to this game seven at home. I think it's disappointing for them not to have uh, sealed the deal and won it. But you look at it. I mean, their top line with all three of those guys out there scored zero goals in this series. Like uh, Bergeron and Marshawn create, created that one five on five goal uh, late in game six when it was already over. But Bergeron was on the ice for zero goals for and six goals against yeah. at five on five and in 80 minutes in the series. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of that is going against Pareko and Bo Meester, And that certainly makes life difficult. But what I wanted to get into more is like, and, and there's certainly injuries, right? Like we saw that, you know, I think Bergeron, even at the start of this postseason, just moving up and down the ice did not look like the Patrice Bergeron we've come to know and love. And, and Pasternak with that thumb injury he had, you know, you could see certainly on some of the one-timers there wasn't enough, as much zip on them as there might have been during the regular season. But there's also this, like, element of, um, and I don't mean to relitigate this, like, does skill win in the postseason or is it, you know, toughness and intangibles? It's clearly a combination of both and you need a certain baseline level of skill to do it. But it felt like for that top Bruins top line, you know, what made them so special throughout the season was that sort of crisp precision passing of theirs where they're just going east-west uh, across the ice and getting the goalie moving and opening up the defense and those Pasternak one-timers. And and we saw, you know, Marshine did score that one beautiful goal on, on the power play w- with that similar type of passing play in game six. But, 
it felt like they were still trying to go back to that well because that's what they know and that's what makes them so successful throughout the year. But whether it was the combination of the injuries or playing against Preko and Bomeister or the horrible ice, I thought the puck was just bouncing around everywhere as that series went along. Yeah, A lot of those passing plays just kind of died, right? Like there wasn't the same crispness or movement to them. It allowed Bennington and the Blues defense to get set maybe even like a half second more than they would have otherwise under ideal circumstances. And, and so that's ultimately, I think, a big reason why we saw that lethargic lack of offense from them it's just it was this kind of confluence of factors that made it really tough for them to do what they want to do out there when they're really humming and firing on all cylinders i don't know about you i'm all for moving the cup final up so we don't get this kind of mid-june 90 degree nonsense where the ice is affected like it was because you're i mean you're absolutely right especially as the series were on um the quality of of passes i don't think that these players magically lost their touch i feel like it's more the the surface to blame than anything um, it does take away a little bit and, and, you know, maybe Boston should adjust it, especially that top line. Maybe they should have, you know, tried to find a way to change their game a little bit, but when you're, you know, literally known as the perfection line, um, <laughs> okay, come on. And, we, no one called, yeah. no one actually calls in that. That well, is like the, the most, Oh boy. I mean, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy though, yeah. because I mean, I, I read so many stories where, especially even from St. Louis media, you know, just dropping into St. Louis for games three and four, there was, you know, so much written about, you know, shutting down the so-called perfection line and stuff. I'm like, when did this become a nickname? Um, but I mean, look, they, they were probably the best line in hockey throughout the season, yep. you know, definitely top three. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were that way because they were maybe to your point, playing a little bit more of a regular season style of, of hockey. What, at least something that you can't get away with when a, the ice is that bad. And then B, um, the defensive structure on the other side is that good? Yeah, and the and and the injuries and everything, and and I mean, just go back and look at that game seven. Like some of the the saves by Bennington were certainly, um, you know, remarkable athletic feats, like with the with the stretching out and the reaction time and everything. But most of those saves, if you look at them, are Bruins shooters um, not getting. Oh, right um, into the pads. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like all in the ice, uh, like pucks balancing. It's a lot of like just kind of half-hearted. Not 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 half-hearted efforts, but like they're not getting the full zip on them, and so in, in today's game, like most of these goalies, we we constantly see like, oh, this goalie's weakness is high glove, this goalie's weakness is, is high blocker. It's like, yeah, generally, like a perfect shot that's like off the bar and in is going to be much tougher to stop than something on the ice where these ridiculous size pads they're wearing these days are going to just stop everything. And and so in that game, the Bruins, especially in the first period, had a lot of chances, but a lot of them was stuff along the ice where it made life a bit easier for Bennington to just stretch his pads out and block it. Yeah, agreed. Um. All right, let's uh let's take a quick break here. We're gonna hear from a sponsor, and then I want to uh, pick your random about get some that stuff cash, that get yeah. that paper. Yeah, sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast is SeatGeek. I think everyone can agree on two things: one, actually going out to an event, whether it's a concert, a stand-up comedy, a play, a sporting event, it's a blast. It's a really fun night out. There's a reason we go out there. We get out to the atmosphere. We mingle, we cheer, we get excited, we have a few drinks. It's a great time. But the issue, and something we can also agree on, is that sometimes actually getting there and the act of securing your tickets and figuring out how you're going to get there, where you're going to sit, how much it's going to cost you, can be really stressful and anxiety-inducing. And sometimes it just feels like it's not worth going through all that just for one night out. So we instead just sit at home and do the same thing over and over again. And, and, and that's a shame because there really should be a better way to go about um, saving time, money, and effort to get out to some of these events. Unfortunately, there is, and it is with SeatGeek. SeatGeek's changed the game because they've gotten rid of a lot of those kind of stressful factors and really just focused on catering their product to make it easy for you. And even if you're not the most technologically savvy person or you don't really know where to look, you just go on SeatGeek and they're really going to do all the work for you. They're going to search millions of tickets. They're going to search uh, all over the web and pull millions of different tickets for each event into one place. And then they're going to grade the tickets for you based on value and display it on an interactive seat map. So you just look for the good deals that are denoted with the green dots and you stay away from the overpriced one, which are the red dots. And it's really that simple. And then you can also rest assured that when you show up to the event and you flash them your tickets and they scan it, you're going to get in there without any glitch because all their purchases with SeatGeek are fully guaranteed for all their seats so that you can shop for confidence knowing that what you pay for is what you're going to get. I've used a SeatGeek app 
countless times as I've talked about it on the show. Um, I've got the app on my phone. You just type in whatever you're looking for. You know, this summer I'm going to be going to tennis. I'm going to be going to concerts. And within a couple of minutes, you're in and out. And it really is that simple. And you've saved yourself the time, money, and effort that uh, you so desperately need and crave. And if you're still kind of unsure about it and you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to you know, make the plunge or use SeatGeek or, or, or it might not be for me. Um, let's sweeten the pot a little bit for you by giving you $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase to, to get out there and enjoy an event. All you need to do is download the SeatGeek app and then you enter the promo code today, which is PDO for $10 off your first purchase. That's promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase. Let them know we sent you your help and support the show. And I guarantee it'll be the easiest way you found to shop for tickets and you're going to have a fun night out. And considering there's no more hockey on, there's no more basketball on, I think we could all use uh, an exciting night out this summer. So that's promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase. Now let's get back to the show. All right, Alex. Um, Enough about Game 7. I, I, I'm kind of more curious, big picture stuff here. As we mentioned, you were covering the series. You were bouncing around. You're you're having you're having beers. You're having dinners with me, with other media members throughout the series. What? Uh, give me a, give us a little like uh, peek behind the curtain in terms of either some behind the scenes stuff. I know you have some great anecdotes from the actual celebration itself, but I'm also curious like around these events, whether it is the Stanley Cup Final or whether it's the All Star Break or, or whether it's the draft. You know when all of this media kind of congregates and comes together. Um, you, you do kind of pick up on some stuff. People are, are gravitating towards a couple topics, whether it's, you know, summer transactions or rule changes or, or kind of stuff that they've been hearing and that's being passed along. Like you, you, you hear a lot of like, um, you know, rumor mongering, or you hear a lot of the uh, scuttlebutt and I, I'm kind of curious on what was going on there. So let's start with, with some of the behind the scenes stuff and we'll transition into uh, into the buzz that it was around the series. Your the initial premise assumes that I'm out having beers and having dinner with people. Oh, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen pictures. I've seen Alex Pruitt out in town. I I was don't worry, none of none of them. I were was like definitely taking this cup. I think than I've ever been. Um, <laughs> as far as no, I was just kind of busy. You know, we we the magazine schedule was such that we basically had to plan for both the Blues and the Bruins winning, and I kind of had to have something ready at the gun, and then that went all to hell when. Uh, St. Louis ended up winning Game Six. Then I was kind of running around crazy trying they, to get something uh, for Game Seven. But... Is, is Sports Illustrated going to send your Bruins win the Stanley Cup? Um, oh, straight to hell. Ar- ar- no article to like uh, people in need that they can like read it for entertainment. Like, yeah, exactly. like they send it with like merchandise. They should send something else in if they want entertainment. <laughs> um, here, here's what I love about kind of the social aspect, and we can get to the scuttlebutt in a second. Mm-hmm. But um, all sorts of cultures come together at the Stanley Cup. I feel like in a way. Um, that is probably not the case in other sports, at least from a reporter standpoint. Um, you have groups of Finns, you have groups of Russians, you have groups of Swedes. Um, obviously, it kind of depends on the nationalities of people who are in the cup final. You have interviews being conducted in French. Um, I mean, one of my favorite things to come out of this was, I don't know if you saw the article from Chris Johnson, friend of the program, yes, um, yep. writing, writing about what one of the members of the Finnish media were asking to Rask. Um, just these absolutely really silly questions, because normally the way it works is, you know, you get a press conference, uh, English-speaking media asks the majority of the questions, and then they'll tack on a foreign language one at the end. Um, so this Finnish reporter, Monty, I kind of forget his name, but his last name, but apologies to him for that. He just started asking Tuukka Rask kind of silly questions, um, referencing old stuff that happened, like the time he played an entire tennis match against a pro who was using a frying pan, and Tuukka lost. Um, just these little little things that like you wouldn't know and wouldn't really learn about unless either a you take the time to ask or b you know the language um and then to see you know all these cultures kind of coming out together and like you said you exchanging a little info because you know these guys get to know people like tuka rask or the czechs get to know david pasternak or whomever um at a much deeper level than we do it's like you know if i was working in russia and covering an an american guy in the khl or something Mm -hmm. um we would kind of develop a relationship i think that is uh unique at least among native speakers of that country um, so that was one thing I took away. Um, as far as, as far as the scuttlebutt goes, um, I don't know. We can talk about whatever, um, big thing I'm looking forward to in the off season is kind of seeing what happens with maybe the best RFA class that we've had in recent memory. Mm. Um, whether, whether some GMs are finally going to throw some offer sheets and kind of back up the talk that we seem to hear every year about, like, Oh, this is the year where it might happen where one GM might, uh, buck the status quo and go against the establishment and, and throw up a whole bunch of money and, at people because there are some names out there. Um, I mean, obviously the big ones, Rotten and Marner, um, Kachuk, Point, Line A, etc. But you know, yeah. on down the list, 
make a guy like Kasperi Kapanen get taken advantage of as far as uh, Toronto's cap situation goes or um, let someone take a run at Timo Meyer, depending on what San Jose decides to do with, with Eric Carlson and mm-hmm. where their cap situation is. Um, there's a lot of interesting storylines, I feel like, as, as far as that goes. But um, I wish I was more plugged into the ground as far as rumors and I could just be like a TSN trade center here and just kind of spitting stuff out. But uh, I was a little bit more head down. Yeah. Well, the, the, uh, I think a lot of that stuff's really going to ramp up around the draft, both in terms of transactions, but also in terms of like, you know, these rumors that we're hearing about and sort of stuff to look forward to ahead of July 1st. But it, yeah, the, uh, it's tough because on the one hand, we do this like annual dance where I do really want to get excited about, it feels like this year more so than any, both because there's such a high volume of these high priced RFAs, but also because it seems like most of the teams that have them are in a bit of a financial bind and are either going to have to get ahead of it and, you know, move quality players similar to how like the Blackhawks did for all those championship years just to clear up space so they can keep some other guys or, um, there is going to be stuff that happens here, right? Like it's, it's, I don't know, this whole idea that um, you don't want to sign an offer sheet for a, a, another team's player because you worry that there's going to be retribution and they're going to come back after you. It's like, well, if that's great, but if you just do your job well and handle your finances and don't sign terrible contracts, you will always be able to retain your best players. Like that's not something I would be particularly worried about if I was a GM. I wouldn't be worried about retribution either because you get the player. Exactly. Yeah. Well, theoretically, right? They have to sign. There's a lot that has to go into it. The team won't match and all et cetera. But um, I think that would be a risk worth taking because you get the better player in it. Like, what are they? What, what's the retribution going to be? You know, he doesn't trade well, with you for a, a lesser player. Well, like, I think the worry is like when you are in a similar spot as them and you have a young RFA, they're going to come back and throw a max offer sheet at them. And it's like, okay, well, either... Well, you'll, you should be smarter then. Like, you'll you'll learn from that first time, and you won't do the same mistakes that they do. I don't know. Well, yeah, and also, it's like, um, if they come back and, and, and offer sheet one of your best young players for a lot of money, either he's worth it, and then you can just match that offer sheet, or you just take a bunch of compensatory picks that they give you if you deem that that guy's not worth it, and that's perfectly fine as well. Like, there's no, I, I don't know, this idea that, like, it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. It just seems so uh, silly to me, but I, I listen these guys want to maintain the status quo it is uh a bit of an old boys club and and they want to maintain their friendships and so they don't want to burn any bridges and that's why this stuff happens but from a viewership and entertainment perspective it feels like all we really need is one i know we've had a couple instances here and there in the past but it feels like this summer if there's like one offer sheet that comes out of the gate hot i feel like it could open the door for some other uh shenanigans down the line we've already had the capitals drought and the blues drought end now let's have the offer sheet drought. That's the drought no one's talking about. Um, well, I mean, for, also from kind of an entertainment, I guess, viewership perspective, maybe not from a human perspective because I don't like to see people lose their jobs. But there, there's a lot of buyout candidates, it feels like. Um, some big names with big salaries out west. And not necessarily who's getting bought out because I feel like the, the list of, you know, Lucic, Erickson, Phaneuf, Perry, et cetera, um, is kind of set, at least as candidates. But what those teams are going to do with that space because there's a lot of – a lot of teams out west that need to make some moves um, from the Kings, Canucks, Oilers, um, and Ducks. I feel like are kind of the big four right now. Um, looking to see what kind of leaps they make with with some of these albatross contracts. Um, what they're going to do to I, mean, I don't know if Jim Benning is going to go out and buy an entire third line like he bought a fourth line last year with the cap space that he has. Um, but you know, and some pretty good teams from years gone by in, in the Ducks and in the Kings um, are probably going to shed some big contracts. So. Um, looking to see what what kind of noise they make. Are they candidates for that offer stuff? I don't know. Are they candidates just for a little more noise and free agency? But um, kind of the, re, the the retooling at the bottom of the standings, I think, is something I'm going to be paying attention to. Well, here's the other thing. Obviously, there's the upcoming expansion draft to consider, and we're going to see a lot of that in terms of um, teams worrying about the contracts they have in place in terms of obviously we've seen a lot of teams like make sure that they have that backup goalie signed long term so they can expose them and and you know you don't want to necessarily be handing out or taking on uh, a bunch of contracts with no move clauses because then you automatically you have to protect them and then maybe it kind of ties your hands with another younger player but there's also this kind of added element of 
you know, the CBA is coming up soon and whether that's going to result in a lockout or not, we'll see, but it's presumed that there's going to be some more compliance buyouts coming down the road with that as well to kind of allow GMs uh, a get out of jail free card. And so that's another such like a fascinating element, element or wrinkle to this where I'm curious to see what the trickle down effect is uh, with some of these contracts that are going to be handed out because GMs can act knowing that they can kind of swing for the fences. And if it doesn't work out, they've got this uh, get out of jail free card in their back pocket. So that's another thing. There's like this so many uh, with the expansion draft, with the RFAs, with the rising cap, with, with the, with everything, there's, so much potential, I guess, for movement. And then I guess maybe as uh, as hockey fans, we should know that we shouldn't get too excited because usually uh, the buzz doesn't necessarily line up with what actually ultimately happens. Yeah. At the same time, though, I, I, I'm hopeful. It yeah. feels like maybe we're at the cusp of this, but I'm certainly hopeful that we're entering an age of where free agents actually take agency upon themselves. Um, you know, Obviously, we saw it with John Tavares and probably going to see it again fingers crossed because i think that's great from an entertainment perspective the bidding process the rumors etc it's great for the game um with eric carlson and matt duchene this year and, and sergey Bobrovsky and artemi panarin um feels like it's as good a free agent class as we've had in the past couple of years assuming those guys don't get um you know locked up beforehand so um i would like i would obviously like to see more of that um well i, I don't know like I, you- i'm sure like term limits aren't going to be on the table reduced term limits in the mm-hmm. next cba but yeah. um that's something i feel like that has benefited the nba transaction wire um Given guys the opportunity to get out of their deals a little bit earlier, um, evaluate the market, and then that in turn generates a lot of buzz. Yeah, I would love to see the uh, like the player option at least introduced. You know, mm. so, so guys can get out of their deals a bit earlier, and it does give uh, star players with, uh, I guess, the, the leverage for like earning power, uh, the opportunity to control their own fate. I'm not sure if that's a, a pipe dream or not, but I mean, I, th- I feel like you are put on this earth to document these. Uh, these like interview processes and give us a, a, a behind the scenes yeah. look at like the whining and dining and, and, and everything that's going on with some of these star players as, as they visit different markets and try to get wooed. Like I, I, I would love to see that. I think uh, I, you and I talked about this, obviously the Tavares was one, the Stamkos was another, but I feel like I'd like to see a bit more of that. And, and, and uh, you know, with the social media era and with everything in 2019, um, it lends itself to really like uh, giving giving the fans um, like a, a passenger seat for that ride to kind of follow along and 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 see what's going on uh, in some of these circles with some of these star players. That and arbitration mm-hmm. are, I think, kind of my two narrative white whales at this point. Yeah, um, something that I would love to be kind of on the inside and, and peel back the curtain too, but. Um, it's a two-way and sometimes three-way street when you're dealing with both the teams and the players themselves. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of deep-rooted hockey culture to overcome as far as like convincing guys to open up their lives and open up meetings and um, get a little bit under the hood in that way. Well, oh man, the contentious uh, arbitration ones. Like I would love. I don't think it would necessarily turned out that nasty, but I imagine. I guess we'll see what William Carlson's next contract looks like, right? But obviously after the year he had, after their expansion season and then what he got paid and, and how he followed it up this year, um, I, I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for the Knights negotiating that one-year deal that he just got this year as opposed to what he was probably asking for after scoring 40 goals. Mm-hmm. If you remember, um, when they took Nate Schmidt, <clears throat> they went to arbitration with him. Mm-hmm. Pretty unnecessarily, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but um, I think that was the only RFA that they had an issue with coming out of the expansion draft, resigning. Um, and it did seem to me like a little bit of posturing, like they kind of wanted to set a hard line with one of their guys and like go there right, rightly or longly. So um, I could see, yeah, this this getting a little contentious now that William Carlson is up, and um, you know, given the the forty goal season, and then obviously the the regression that was expected to happen, it did happen. Yep. Um, because he's not going to have 40 every year. He's not going to go on a PDO bender every year. And then how that's going to be reflected in RFA discussions. Um, I think history shows that that George McPhee, uh, he'll go to war for that stuff. He will. But I mean, what, he scored like probably 25 goals or something this year off the top of my head. And, and as we're given his two-way value at that position, like he's going to get paid handsomely. I'm not, I'm not worried. Oh, about and, and it should be, yeah. 24 yep. goals, 56 points. Like that's, yep. that's probably where William Carlson is. Yep. Yep. Uh, I think that's going to work out for both parties. Um what was the, uh, I know you wanted to share, because you obviously you wrote about this at Sports Illustrated and people should go read that, but were there a couple of uh, nuggets you wanted to share from the uh, behind the scenes of the celebration after game seven yeah, sure. or, or, or kind of um, any stuff that was left know. on the cutting room floor that you can uh, give us? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I don't know how this happened. I wound up basically just in the corner of the locker room um, as all the champagne's getting sprayed and all the beers being drank. And this is like right after the all-nice stuff, right after the family's kind of cleared out and all the players decamp and the coaches, they, they retreat to the locker room for their own little private celebration. Um, I didn't hadn't thought about this ahead of time, but I, I was wearing a rain jacket to the game just because like that's one of the warmest jackets I own. Um, that turned out to be a very smart move. It's like um, a bunch of... I was like standing on on top of like a little curtain platform because the entire floor was just a puddle of beer and champagne at that point by the time I came in. And um, this little routine developed where everyone, anytime anyone new came in, and this is from medical trainers, equipment managers, players, coaches. At one point, there was a big cheer up of, of let's find Larry for Larry Robinson. Um Everyone was referring to Larry as 10. Anytime they wanted Larry to drink, they would just yell out 10 because of the number of cups that he had won. <laughs> um, and on down the list, player people would come in this room. The cup was at the center of it. Then people would come in. They would pour a bunch of beer in it. Everyone would start chanting the baseline of Seven Nation Army. Everyone would start spraying champagne and beer, this like giant car wash of, of booze. And then they would take a drink from the cup. And this went on for like an hour, an hour and a half or so. Um, where like pretty much to the point, you know, PR people, uh, social media managers, alumni, et cetera, everyone's just kind of drinking from the cup and getting to share it together. Um, so that's, that's something I'll remember. You know, I, I hadn't been, this is my fourth cup for SI. Um, the first year, I'm trying to think, first year was Nashville, or sorry, Pittsburgh, San Jose. Um, didn't get a heck of a lot of behind the scenes there. The second year I was basically parked outside the Pittsburgh dressing room when they won in Nashville and um, I think I was like hanging on to Phil Pritchard, the hall of fame guy, um, definitely hanging on to an agent at some point and just basically just watching kind of observing. Um, but this was, this was the closest I'd ever gotten to like actually seeing, um, kind of the celebration that you, that you get to watch, you know, via reporters in the NFL, baseball, basketball, where, you know, everyone's wearing the goggles and all the locker rooms are, um, kind of tarped down and everyone's spraying champagne. This was a little bit, uh, more of a, I don't know, just a basic operation. There was no tarps. There were no goggles. Um, there were just buckets of beer and, and boxes of champagne. And um, like I said, the party was, it started there, but uh, it, it continued raging right onto those charter buses and straight to the airport and then all the way back home where they stayed uh, partying at, at Nationwide. So, um, yeah, I mean, going through my notebook, you know, Tom Stillman got the same treatment as as the equipment guys did where he comes in and um, he basically just has, you know, two like two bottles of beer poured over his head while he's drinking from the cup. And this is the owner. Um, <laughs> Jake Allen emerges from the locker room onto the ice with a slice of pizza. And this is like before everyone's gone back in. And the only thing he says is, oh, got to establish a base here. Um, did, did, did someone throw toss Jake Allen a beer and it went through his hand and he couldn't stop it? Oh, oh boy, yikes. Sorry. That's, that's, <laughs> Stanley, that's Stanley Cup champion Jake Allen to me. That's Stanley Cup champion Jake Allen to you. Yeah. Uh, Professional door opener, Jake Allen. What was uh, um, what was Michael Delzato up to? Was he was he DJing? No, uh, Braden Shen was the DJ. Okay. Um, they had already played Gloria by the time I got in there. Although he, when I got in there, he had quieted everyone down and said, "We're going to put a song on." And then he put on "Shipping Up to Boston." Nice. Um, he put on a little bit of Dropkick Murphys. I think it was a nice nice little troll move. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say Ivan Barbashev's the early candidate for the Jacob Verana Drunkest Euro Award. Oh um, man, I really so, hope uh, Jacob Rana last year getting a getting like a wrist tattoo and then taking a selfie and lifting up the sleeve of his T-shirt to show off his wrist tattoo is uh, peak drunkness. And I hope Ivan Ivan Barbashev. I mean, those are those are big shoes for him to fill this summer. For for those of people who haven't seen the video of Jacob Rana with Caps play by play guy Joe Beninati yep. uh, at like two a.m. at a restaurant where Jacob's trying to do Joel, Joe's goal calls, um, please go check it out on Twitter. Um, I, you know, I saw Barbashev, he was time and time again, basically just pouring entire bottles of beer over his own head while he was FaceTiming with friends. Um, there was an entire rack of Pedialyte that was just unattended. And I only saw like two players have some Gatorade. So they went pretty hard. Not a lot of, not a lot of rehydration going on. Yeah. Who was, um, uh, well, you, I was going to say that, you know, we saw some pictures from the team playing and it looked like, uh, Patty Maroon and, and Ryan O'Reilly certainly kept the party going on there at least. But well, who was, uh, was there anyone that was really sticking out in terms of, uh, going hard with the, with the drinking? There, there were two championship belts that were floating around. So I feel like every time that reached a new person, that person seemed a little bit more emboldened. Um, I'm not sure where they got where they got them from. These like wrestling belts. Yep. They were they had the NHL logo on them. So I assume the league gave it to them. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I got a chance to talk with Jordan Bennington um, for maybe like ten minutes or so. I just kind of stole him away 
before they left to the bus, he was already changed out of his clothes or out of his, you know, champagne soaked championship t-shirt stuff. And, um, we just kind of sat on the bench for a little while and, uh, he was kind of reflecting about his journey. And I, I think that was maybe a little more open than I've heard Jordan be in the past. Um, you know, talking about a couple years back, he, you know, he was partying like any normal, I think 20 something would over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way Matt Nickel framed it to him, um, was basically, you know, to be an NHL goaltender is not normal. Like you got to cut some of that stuff out. And, um, the way he, the way Matt, for people who don't know, runs the BioSteel gym where, you know, McDavid and Sagan and Tom Wilson and Wayne Simmons and all these guys train. Um, the way he framed it to Jordan was basically like, you know, you can party now like you're doing, or you can work really hard now and have a really big party later. And, this is a really big party. You know, the last thing he said to me, I asked him, you know, so well, so you can have a big party now. And he goes, Oh yeah, I'm going to drop 50 K on my party easily. <laughs> um, so I think his mind had, had, had kind of wandered. He was, you know, so obviously like we talked about, so stone cold focused throughout this entire thing. But, um, you know, as they're up four, one or three, one, whatever in the, um, in the third period, I think his mind kind of started to, to drift towards the magnitude of his story and, um, just how far he really has come from being the fourth string goalie. So to, to kind of get him, away from the celebration like that, um, where it's died down, you know, he's sitting on the bench that there's Gatorade bottles and beer, beer cans everywhere. And the ice is empty. And he's looking at the spot where, um, all the teammates came off the bench and went to flood him in goal. And, um, he's kind of talking about just, um, how far he had come, um, since he's, you know, getting demoted to the ECHL and refusing that assignment and sitting at home for two weeks because no team really wants him. Mm. Um, those are the kind of quiet moments that, that as a storyteller, I, I kind of cherish, yeah. um, in the aftermath of the Stanley cup. And I, I had gotten to a certain point where I was just like standing in that room and people were, there was just, you know, another champagne spray after another champagne spray. I'm like, all right, I, I kind of get the gist here. Like, yeah. I can only say, I can only say he popped bottles so many times. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was also Bobby Plager sitting outside, um, in the hallway and he refused to go in because he had only one suit and he didn't want to get it wet. Um, <laughs> I forget, I, and this was kind of a blind quote because I didn't write down who said it, but somebody somebody came up to Bobby at one point, one of the players, and said, we, "I can curse on here, right?" Yep, absolutely. Uh, he, said, he said, "Quote: We lost the first game, and I was shitting my pants." <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's you know that's kind of the honesty that comes out, kind of the the, the big release um, after to tie back to the beginning, off, after all the physical and emotional investment. It's you know Vlad Tarasenko hugging Doug Armstrong and basically telling him like, "Thanks for not trading us all away," because um, look at where it got us. So um, those are the kind of scenes that. Um, you know, it was very worthwhile for me to, to be back there and um, stuff that hopefully made a good story. So yeah, please, please go read it. That's awesome, man. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. I recommend everyone goes to uh, goes to read it. And uh, I think uh, let's move on from this cup final. I feel like we did it justice. We put a bow on it. Was, was there anything else that we wanted to get to from this series? No, I would like some... to break some extremely important news that just came off Twitter. Twitter though, okay, the yeah. Flyers have placed Andrew McDonald on waivers for wow. the purpose of the buyout. Wow. Wow, what a! It's, it's the stuff your it's the stuff your listeners really really want to know. The end of an era. I mean, honestly, the fact that he made it this deep into that contract <laughs> pretty is, amazing is a testament to to him the ineptitude of the Flyers. Uh, it's uh, all of it. You know, I remember when that trade happened and when that contract came out. Uh, man, there were people that were actually uh, at the time still defending the uh the you know the the value of a player like andrew mcdonald and, and sort of how you needed to pay those guys and how they were very valuable defensemen and it does feel like for all the consternation about how there's still pushback and there's still old school types in the media and and around the game uh it feels like we've come a long way since uh since the days of arguing about andrew mcdonald and whether he was worth five-year five-year deals <laughs> i don't think we need to spend any more time there no but i do want to talk about the flyers because, Please. Uh, they made a trade. They did. And it was an interesting one because we do very rarely see these types of trades in hockey where it's like it's the quote unquote like just good old fashioned hockey trade where it's like a one for one, but it's two guys who play the same position who are in relative same parts of their career in terms of they're both like veteran roster players. And, you know, with Matt Niskanen being traded for Rakugudas. It, it was really fascinating to see sort of the discourse on Twitter about it and see how people were taking it because I don't know, maybe it's just because of the, the who the two players are in question, right? Like it feels like Gudas because of all of the suspension stuff and all the head hunting and all of that. Like it's very easy to make the jokes about him and to think that he's just sort of this goon who doesn't actually play hockey. And 
that's not true because he's actually a pretty valuable yeah. defenseman when he's not doing all of that, all of those shenanigans. But then you have Matt Niskanen, who was so valuable to this Capitals team. When I still remember when they went out and, and, and paid for him and brought him in in free agency. And it felt like that was just a big move in terms of like signaling, like where they were headed as a franchise and how well he and Orlov played as their top pairing throughout that Stanley cup run last year. And so for them to move off of him after just one year, uh, one being one year removed from that run, like there's a lot of stuff and a lot of competing factors going in here that make this such a fascinating complicated trade yeah I, brian mcclellan if nothing else has shown um pretty good pretty solid acumen i think for knowing when players are on the decline and knowing when to part with players and try to get value um for some guys i think about like the troy brower trade for oshi a couple years ago um and i think niskanen maybe falls into that bucket where he didn't have a great year this year um injuries might have been a part of it for sure um but i feel like you you kind of know what you're going to get with him um, you know, very sturdy, kind of defensive-minded, right-shot guy. Might not give you a ton of offense, but um, I think one of the best sticks in the league, um, one of the best guys as far as just kind of one-on-one battles with with guys who are trying to stick kind of around him. Um, but they had to clear space, right? Um, this is kind of the hangover stuff that we talk about with with teams that, that end up not winning it. Um, they're definitely going to have to pay Verona a pretty hefty number, um, and they're going to need some money, I think, to, to retool their third line a little bit with Burakovsky probably leaving. I don't know what they're going to do. He's an RFA, but if they don't qualify him and he leaves and then Conley leaves as a UFA, then um, those are probably both sides of Lars Eller right now that you want to address, and you can you probably feel like you can get a little bit of an upgrade at. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't hate the trade for Washington um, simply because they were able to shed space and um, Philly retained Gudis' salary, and I think in an ideal scenario, Gudis is a 6'7 guy that – um, they have two pretty young left shots on the third pair right now in, in Juice and Siegenthaler and then a young right shot in the system in Lucas Johansson. But, mm-hmm. um, I mean, their, their top four does seem pretty locked in now that they have Jensen. They signed into that long deal, and McClellan seems to like them. And um, for Philly's perspective, I think it's it's <laughs> Matt Niskano, you know, versus either Rakil Gudis or Andrew McDonald, I think it probably gives you a little bit more of sturdiness. Um, I think Niskanen's a really good locker room guy as well, and um, – some of the young defensemen there that they have in Philly, I think are going to benefit from his presence. Yep. Yeah. Well, so from the Cavs perspective, um, you know, get going out of the deadline and getting Nick Anson and then, and then re-signing him long-term immediately. I do feel like that's kind of, um, you know, a big driving force or a factor here where they clearly feel comfortable bumping him up into that permanent top four role. And then now, even if you get Gudas as a third pairing defenseman and Orpex gone, and they're probably not going to bring him back this summer, like, that blue line does make sense and then you hope some of those young guys can take a step for them and and clearly i mean what they save 3.5 million or so on the cap this year especially yep. with the flyers retaining some salary on gouda so for them with a the cap crunch they're in and trying to kind of fit all these pieces in under the cap it makes a lot of sense because i don't think that as much as i love matt niskanen um in terms of the career he's had and i completely buy all that stuff in terms of i think he's going to be a very great like sort of steadying veteran presence for some of those Flyers defensemen. And, and he meant so much to the Capitals at this point of his career. I don't think just from an on ice perspective that the value between what he'll give you as a player and what Gudas could potentially give you if he has his head on right and isn't getting suspended all the time. Like it's negligible, especially with the 3.5 million savings and what that means in terms of being able to retain a guy like Rana. So for the yeah. caps, it certainly <clears throat> makes sense. It's a bit alarming to have Tom Wilson and Radko Gudas on the same team. I feel like uh, oh, someone tweeted out a picture of the Bash Brothers from the Mighty Ducks, which yeah. I thought was perfect because like Tom Wilson already looks like Dean Portman a little bit. <laughs> um, but but yeah. it is it is kind of terrifying. Yeah, I mean, look, this is two years in a row now, though. To go back to Jensen, um, that the Capitals identified a guy as a complimentary piece at the deadline and then liked what they saw and immediately resigned him to a long term deal. Um, yep. Kepney obviously worked out tremendous during their Cup run, and I think him next to Carlson and then. Um, Jensen as the complimentary piece next to Orlov is, is a pretty solid top four because you have two guys who are going to kind of carry the the puck moving load in, in Carlson and, and Orlov and but th- those are two guys in Kempney and Jensen who can complement them I think pretty well in terms of North South game yeah and they missed Kempney quite a bit as he got injured and, and missed that first round series but very much so. um you know Gudas is, is interesting because his underlying numbers are great and at worst I think he's a very valuable third pairing defenseman who can probably play a bit up in the lineup if you have injuries or whatnot but then like the cons of his game are are, are are so obvious in that i mean first off you really don't know what you're going to get in terms of like it feels like any shift he takes could be the literally the last shift of his nhl career because he's just going to publicly 
execute someone with a wild hit. So that's alarming. But, uh, you know, he only has the one year left on his deal. So for the Caps, it makes sense as like a dice roll to bring him in and see what you're going to get from him from a stylistic perspective. Um, the Flyers over the past couple of years have really struggled with just how much of their offense is uh, revolved around point shots from our defensemen. And it felt like as teams focus more on on increasing their quality and working around the net and, and hammering that, the, the slot shots. For them, it was just like bombing from the point, and Gudas loves to shoot from that right point. And I, I'm very curious to see how that fits in with the Capitals because they're like the kings of shot quality, both under Trotz and under Reardon in terms of where they want to get the puck and what they want to focus on. And so I'm curious to see how that sort of like stylistic fit is going to be, whether Gudas can change his game or whether just the Capitals are just going to let him do whatever he wants in those third pairing minutes or whether there's going to be kind of a happy balance or happy medium between those two and, and how he fits into that into that system. So that's going to be something to watch as well. Todd Reardon does seem to fancy himself something of a defenseman whisperer. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to go back to when Orpik and Niskanen, they signed them for, combined, what was it, you know, $67.75 million or something um, a couple summers ago, I think, especially with Orpik, kind of some hands went up. But that that at least internally, had a big effect, um, kind of symbolizing not only the willingness to go out and spend money on defensemen, which hadn't really happened in the George McPhee era, um, but also bringing in some guys who, who I did I didn't change the culture there. But um, the important thing, as we've seen with some other cup winners in the past, is to know when to cut bait. Um, and both Niskanen and Orpik are coming off the books this year, and you're able to transition to a new core. Um, so I think I think they they got as much use out of those guys as they as they could. Um, even bringing Orpik back last year, and um, on you move, and that's that's how you retool. Um, yeah. When you have top heavy guys like Backstrom and, and um, Obeshkin eating up the top of your cap, um, you're gonna have to make some sacrifices on the back end. Yeah, that emotional attachment I think is probably the best, one of the best skills you could have as a GM, and you can certainly get out of a lot of trouble by uh, knowing when to cut bait. And and with Niskanen. It you could I, I think the Flyers are banking on the fact that this year was a bit of a throwaway just because. They played so deep last year, and Niskanen put so many miles on his body, and maybe he just never was right this year. And after a regular long off season, he's gonna look fresher and younger and, and better next year. And I think they're banking on that. And they better be right because considering how much he's making, if he's gonna be on this trajectory that he looked like he was on this year, where he really took a step back, and him and Orlov uh, really struggled as a pair. All of a sudden, if you're paying that type of guy 5.75 or whatever he's making for the next two years, like that, it is the only two years, but it still is a bit of a bitter pill to swallow considering it, it's a lot of money for a guy who really, really struggled this year, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. he's 33. And he's turning 33. And he's turning 33. Yeah. He has a modified no move as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think he'll look quite good next to Gostas Bear Provorov. Um, I think him and Provorov especially would be a pretty good shutdown pair, but um, he, he might just be the a steady, you know, stay at home defensive influence that Gossip Bear needs as well next to him. Yeah, I buy that. I'm uh and not Andrew McDonald. Yeah. Yeah. Um so the other thing, I guess I don't really have too many thoughts on this. I wanted to talk about the Islanders a little bit because, you know, they've gotten ahead of it uh with some of their UFAs. They gave Brock Nelson a six year deal for six mil per they signed Jordan Eberly. I thought the Eberly one was particularly fascinating because it certainly looked like he would get get paid quite a bit more on the open market, and I'm sure he would have if he ever made it there, but he decided to take less for the financial security and to just stay with Islanders. I guess he likes it there. And and so, you know, that's a good deal for them, especially, I mean, the money is one thing, but also just like the five-year term, it's very reasonable. And I guess it's one of those things where it's like, we always like this like hot take culture and, oh my God, what a terrible signing. Oh my God, what a great signing. What a steal for the team. It's like, oh, this one's just like a perfectly reasonable deal for both the team and the player. We often talk about pay cuts, I feel like, um, retroactively in terms of offers. Like, oh, this guy took less money. He took a pay cut to come here. Um, Jordan Eberle literally took a pay cut. Like, he was making $6 million last year, and mm-hmm. now he's at five and a half. Um, I thought that was a, a really good deal for it New is, York. Yeah. Um, and, and Nelson, too. I thought that was that was pretty solid for what he is. I mean, he's he's probably a middle six center on a good team. I don't think he's going to give you anything more than that. And um, Eberle's, you know, not going to probably shouldn't be leading your team in scoring if you're winning the cup. But again, a, a very necessary complimentary piece that, that you have and at five and a half million. I mean, just looking at their their cap friendly chart right now, their money's spread around pretty well. I mean, no one on their roster is making $6 million right now. Um, they have 22 to burn. They don't, I mean, they, Beauvillier has to get signed as an RFA, but, and Del, Del Cole. But I mean, other than that, 
I think Lou Lamorello is set up to do some damage this offseason, no? Yeah. Well, the biggest winner of that Brock Nelson signing was Kevin Hayes. He must have been like, oh, my God, six times six, Brock Nelson? Yeah, and, please, and, yeah, and he's please. one of the only centers left on the market. It's like, oh, this is uh, – Especially yeah. after the playoffs he had, like – yeah. Coming off that, maybe you're a little down about how, how your market value might have changed, well, how and, perception and might have the, changed, and then that's that's a nice pick-me-up. Well, and the Flyers giving up a pick to acquire your rights. Like, oh, man, this is this is all lining up for Kevin Hayes to have a really nice <laughs> summer. Um, yeah, no, the Islanders, I mean, they have a lot of money to play with, and they've been linked to Duchesne and Panarin and, and so on and so forth. And, and I, you know, they still need to figure out what they're going to do with Leonard and how much they want to reward him financially for the season he had for them. And, and there's a lot of kind of moving parts there. But, you know, with especially with the Eberly signing, like I think from his perspective, you're probably looking at it and you're like, I'm, I'm sure he enjoys it there. And, and he's had two productive years this year. He took a bit of a step back during the regular season, but he really uh, came on hot in the postseason and, and looked really good, especially in that Penguin series. And for him, the oppor- like, I think as a scorer, you're just looking at this stuff pragmatically. You're like, man, the opportunity is here for me, right? Whether it's playing with Barzal or whether they bring in another senator, like he's going to be locked into a top six scoring role no matter what, just because there's so little competition in terms of guys who can actually put the puck in the net there right now. And so for him, he must be looking at it, looking his lips going like, I, I could score 25 to 30 goals here for for at least the next couple of years and i'm just gonna have fun doing so and i'm gonna be paid pretty nicely and even though it's less than i might have made on the open market it works out for him as well so it's uh yeah just a, a nice tidy piece of business and i'm really curious both new york teams seem like they're gonna be on the forefront of a lot of the stuff that's going on this offseason i'm curious to see what happens on the islanders back end um I mean, they have some really good contracts right now. Pulak's making two million, and one year left. Devonte seven hundred k, and Pelix at one point six million with two years left. Um, but all those guys are going to have to get paid at some point. Um, well, so that's the issue of like if you try to go out and get another guy and try to fix your fix kind of some of the top end. I mean, Boychuk has three years left at age thirty five right now. Um, it's not a terribly great contract, but you you have pretty good money spread around on the back end and. Um, I think that's an area of upgrade, but you have to be obviously be mindful of some of the contracts you're going to have to pay up in the next couple of years and what getting someone now would mean for that. Yep. I think they're, uh, and they have every right to be, but I think they're very, very excited and optimistic about Noah Dobson coming in as well, whether it's this year or whether it's at some point into next mm. season. And he will obviously be playing on any LC as well, which kind of gives them the financial flexibility to spend money elsewhere for the next couple of years. So yeah, no, there's some, there's some fascinating moving parts there and, and I'm not sure um, you know, it seems like just based on the percentages, unless they bring in a bunch of really impactful players, they're probably going to take a bit of a step back next year. But um, they have the wiggle room here to have the type of talent infusion that can at least um, mitigate some of that regression and actually uh, allow them to, you know, create more offensively than they did last year, which will go a long way towards helping replicate some of the success they had this season. Same. I mean, same for the Rangers, minus the whole success this season part. Um, I mean, if they if they buy out Chattenkirk or they buy out Brendan Smith, um, I think that's going to clear them over twenty million dollars in terms of current cap space. So, um, curious to see what they do as well. Well, um, just as a thought exercise, like if they went out and they just landed Panarin and Eric Carlson, like what would the what would the I understand it really goes again. Like we've been praising them for being so methodical over the past year and a half or whatever in terms of this rebuild and accumulating assets. And that would just be like such like a mid two thousands Rangers move to go out and just spend a ton of money on two guys, not knowing what you're going to be getting from them a couple of years from now. But I think both those guys are so good that especially for the next, whatever, two, three seasons, like you can bank on superstar production from them. And so I'd be fascinated to see what that team would look like with the combination of all these young guys and then still having like, you know, Lundqvist is obviously there and probably has a couple of years left in him with Kreider and Zabinajad. Like, I, I, I don't know. On the one hand, I really want to see them just play this rebuild out for the next year or so or two years and maybe having one more big draft and then really go for it in 2021 or whatever. But at the same time, like there's a part of me that's like, man, that would just be really fun to watch them go and just spend a bunch of cash on those two superstars right for, away. For the, if only for the uniqueness of it, where you had to, like you said, a team that methodically rebuilt, accumulated picks and develop their prospects and very patient this year and um very on new york mm. team right um but then just to go and just do what new york teams always do and just throw a whole bunch of money and lure people to the bright lights um i'm i'm all for that because we have patient methodically rebuilding teams in the league so far um those are dime a dozen it feels like at times and um to have a team that has done that but then also has the capital uh to go land some big fish um 
it might not be the smartest thing to do for them long term, but is definitely the most exciting thing short term. It would be fun as hell. Yeah, I think uh, that's definitely true. So uh, I wanted to talk about the. Uh, I was telling you off the air. I, I watched the Russian Five documentary yesterday, but you haven't seen it. Yeah, yet, so tell maybe... me. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, I, I highly recommend everyone goes checks it out. I think it's available on. I, I don't know Apple or iTunes or Amazon or wherever people can down buy and, and, and stream these movies, but. Um, it was I, it was really fun to watch because obviously a lot of this stuff happened when I was like super young and I don't I wasn't following the league as closely as as I am now and it was a completely different era in terms of accessibility and, and transparency and so on and so forth but just kind of being taken back to that and sort of learning some of the details and also like the kind of like wild like behind the scenes machinations and espionage and stuff that was going on in terms of what the Red Wings had to do to get Sergei Fedorov and, and a couple of the other Russian players over overseas and bringing them to North America was so fascinating. I just thought it was really well done. So it was a, it was a must watch, I, th I think, for hockey fans, especially considering like sort of the arc and the story that that Red Wings franchise went through and uh, winning 61 games or whatever in 95, 96 and falling short and then bouncing back the following season and the parallels to what we can draw from that for, for the lightning moving forward. And so stuff like that, I, I just think it was a, it was a fascinating must watch and I highly recommend it to, to everyone out there who hasn't seen it yet. Queued up. Um, let's, uh, yeah, maybe when you watch it, come, let's uh, let's get you back on the show and, let, and let's talk about it. I feel like you'd be, uh, I feel like we could have a good conversation. Yeah. Moving, you know, we'd have story time with Alex Pruitt. Now we could have movie time with Alex Pruitt. Sounds good. All right, man. Um, let's get out of here. Enjoy your summer. Obviously, there's still a couple of busy weeks here left ahead of us, but it feels like most of the heavy lifting is done. Um, what uh, what are you working on? What do you got on the docket? Where can people check you out? Uh, well, SI.com. Um, I have a few non-hockey stories coming up soon. Uh, for people who are interested in Chinese basketball, I spent um, about 10 days in China a couple months ago. Um touring around trying to see why it is that so many ex-NBA guys wind up going overseas to play in the Chinese Basketball Association. Um, and then I also ended up spending a couple hours interviewing Yao Ming, who is the head of literally everything regarding Chinese basketball. Um, he's the commissioner of the league. He's the chairman of the National Basketball Federation, which runs the grassroots programs, the Women's Basketball League, um, and the national team. Uh, so he is he is working hard over there, and um, I'm as well trying to get a, a nice story out for the Where Are They Now issue. Um, I might end up in St. Louis over the next couple of days, the parade's today, but I think we're going to pass on that. And uh, I may wind up there just kind of doing a follow to see, um, I guess, how the cup has affected that market. Awesome, man. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Enjoy your summer, and uh, let's check in soon, and let's... You know, the off season's great because there's obviously so much that's going on after free agency, especially like late July, early August, and maybe we can uh we can just talk we can just you know, we just watch movies and just and just talk about it. Just just two guys bullshit. Yeah, just Sounds two good. guys bullshit. All right, man, have a good one. Later. Cheers. The hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.